I think that 2022 might have accidentally fast-tracked this end to humanitarian exceptionalism that I think a lot of us have wanted to see for a while. I think things have gotten quite out of control. Now, we may disagree on this a little bit. Calling the next grand bargain the great leap sideways. This is the podcast from hell. Grand bargain. Decolonizing aid. Humanity. Humanitarian action takes place at the edge of chaos. And to find the right answers, we need smart, honest conversations. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to Trumanitarian. I'm your host, Lars Peter Nissen. Meg Sattler and Paula Hilbaisan, welcome to Trumanitarian. Thank you so much. Hi, Lars. This is, I mean, this is my favorite episode of the year. It's like Christmas coming a bit early. We're taping this mid-December, and I missed you guys. Oh. I can't believe it's been a year since the last one. It seemed like it was about three months ago. Yeah, it's, it's gone very quickly, and I, I want to break the good news to you up front. You have both made it to my top 50 favorite ever humanitarians this year also. Top 50? Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, top 50. Don't I mean, I know it's a lot to to sort of take on, but yeah. Honored. Of the 52 that you know? Yeah, but don't don't leak the news yet. There's quite a lot of competition and and jealousy around that list, so I just wanted to break that so that we start this podcast off in a in a good tone. Were we in like the top 100 last year and it means we climb like 50 steps up? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can see it like that. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty awesome, no man. <laughs> Paula, you are in a undisclosed uh, location somewhere in Asia. So, yeah, I mean, my, my personal situation is, is now taking me to like one of the most interesting places um, for humanitarian work. Um, and I, I get to see the inner workings of um, the other side of the coin. So, yeah, really interesting. Very different. That's great. Great, and Meg, you seem to be most of the time in Australia, but you're still the director of Ground to Solutions. How, how's life for you? Life is good, very busy, which could be why it feels like three months since we last had this conversation. But I've been fluffing around the world a bit um, and, yeah, just a little bit out of control, busy, I would say. And since you're asking for me, nothing has really changed. I'm still stuck in Geneva and... This morning, I'm pondering the eternal question of, of what is more difficult to get a teenager to school or to run a cluster coordination meeting. Probably depends on the cluster. I was listening back to our episode last year. This is, of course, our legendary annual review. And last year, we named uh, 2021 a brutal year, a uniquely difficult year. And I was thinking, we can't do a brutal year 2.0 this year. So, so any takes on, on top line, what, what has this year been like? What about you, Meg? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, I mean, we were discussing this a little bit offline. For me, I think what has been the most interesting about this year is that I think almost accidentally, because of a convergence of a number of different events and processes, um, I think that 2022 might have accidentally fast-tracked this end to humanitarian exceptionalism that I think a lot of us have wanted to see for a while. I think things have gotten quite out of control um, in the humanitarian space as we know it in this sort of tightly controlled realm, um, the very neatly defined 
principled system that everyone has come to expect of humanitarianism. I think a lot of things have happened this year that have sort of blown that out of the water. And I think while that is a little bit daunting, um, it's also something that a lot of reform processes have really needed. So I think 2023 will be quite interesting um, just to sort of see if a lot of these various elements have sort of fast-tracked some of these reform areas that have taken so long to be able to demonstrate any progress on at all. So that's a little bit high level, but I would say reflecting on that this morning, that was my biggest kind of takeaway from 2022. Great. So almost 2022 as an accelerator for some of the processes we have we have wanted to see happen. What, what does it look like for you, Paul? I, I actually end... Uh, 2022 in a in a very sort of positive note of hope for for the sector because my consulting work has sort of opened up opportunities to work with grassroots organizations that are doing a fantastic job in really difficult places and with no support from anyone who actually understands what the grand bargain is. So that is really really refreshing because these people are actually changing lives and then. On the other hand, I work with like really senior people, right? Like at the resident coordinator level, at the sort of country director level. And they're also trying to do things in a dramatically different way. So when someone hires me to do a systems analysis of a really complex crisis, and then they put their money behind doing interventions that are different, um, for me, that is like hopeful. So I think Yes, 2021 was a hard year. 2022 was hard. I think 2045 will be hard as well. But for me, there are glimmers of hope in the people that are doing humanitarian work, and I want them to represent what the sector is. Um, and I think that's why I'm hopeful at the end of this year. I think for me, the overarching feeling is the whiplash from Ukraine. To to see that war come in and just devastate a country in that way this close to Europe and see the geopolitical seismic shift that we have had in Europe and the global sort of ripple effect uh, across the world has for me shaped the year. And I, I say this very, very conscious of the Eurocentric bias there is in this. But I just have found that I have been unable to to snap out of the fact that bloody Finland is joining NATO and just how that shifts the whole world we have here. And in terms of, of the humanitarian sector, I think it is so hard to actually remember what goes on outside Europe. Ten years ago, I was in, no, 12 years ago, Jesus. I was in Pakistan in 2010 for the, the floods that happened back then, and, and they were massive. And we there was a big operation. You had, I think, 21 million people affected at the, the height of it. This year, we have had bigger floods in Pakistan. Nobody's talking about it. It's just not on the radar. It's just not, doesn't seem to be something we we are concerned about. And and so, for me, one one feeling is this being totally blinded by the conflict in Ukraine and the consequences it has in the neighborhood where I'm living. Inside that, I, I see a lot of what, what you are saying, both of you. On one side, we see the Ukrainian civil society doing an amazing job. The whole country 
being mobilized to to deal with this and 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 the traditional humanitarian actors sort of almost being on the margins of that operation and we also see i think a new humility or a new openness to discussing that maybe we're not the solution to everything that that maybe that very tightly knitted narrative that you talk about make that that has been shattered by the scale of things and maybe by having again to operate next to a military industrial complex that are thousands of times bigger than we are and and so it's just really really hard for us to pretend that we are the solution to the problems that we're experiencing in the world and i hope that that will open up for a new dialogue yeah no i i just wanted i just wanted to pick up on something that you said because it's this this um it's the point of view right of the observer that matters and and it's interesting that you're talking about ukraine and that you're talking about pakistan but i wouldn't necessarily have them like in the center of my sort of reflections for this year because if you look at a country like mali that is like rapidly in decline there's zero humanitarian presence no one really cares like there are so many malis in the sector that to put ukraine in the center is for me like a little bit blindsided and and you said um to to see this happening so close to europe and and for me this is the sort of thing that i don't want to see in 2023 i don't i don't want to see a focus on things that um that push the sector because they affect uh head office which is something that we also discussed when we were talking about covid i'd like to see the sector moving to focus on things that are actually very far away and so forgotten that then the big agencies would add value if i can just say i totally agree with that and that that sort of is my point that in spite of of fully agreeing with everything you just said paula i can still see how living in geneva being european how that sucks me into that big black hole that is ukraine european geopolitical situation finland joining nato right how difficult it is to actually escape and have a a truly global humanitarian narrative in your head in spite of what i do for a living right it's just a personal reflection of how difficult it is and that i think maybe the sense of the 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 cracks in the narrative that i hear you talking about make i think that those cracks also come because a lot of us are realizing this that that the stories we run around telling ourselves are not the right stories or are not uh, a sufficiently inclusive story <laughs> just thinking i mean i think another the thing with ukraine though is that it has had its tentacles in a number of different areas like we were doing some survey work in chad and we would talk to people in chad who say i think my aid is drying up because of ukraine because the food prices are costing so much now and it's almost like this this empathy that they had and i think it's also blown open this conversation about um you know there's been so much talk about localization and i know paula was talking about local agencies before i think something that's also happened this year and this probably also depends on your vantage point but 
because so much of the focus on localization, first of all, it's given a name. It's called localization. It's it's like a, a thing. It becomes like another buzzword in the humanitarian system. And it's been so focused on funding flows and the failure of funding to go to local organisations. And if we're not talking about that, we're talking about due diligence and how do you get local humanitarian actors to be able to comply with due diligence so that they can access this funding. But I think what we've seen in places like Ukraine, also in places like Myanmar, um, is that when you talk about local actors, they're not local humanitarian actors, they're local people, they're local communities, they're local organisations who have a life and a focus that is outside the humanitarian system. They're not little versions of Save the Children that are just waiting to have their capacity built so they can become another one of these huge humanitarian organisations and fit into all the boxes that we've given them. And I think there's a real level of discomfort in that, one, because of humanitarian principles. Like most local actors are not impartial and that is not always a bad thing. And there has to be this element of letting go if you want to really support quote-unquote localization, You have to be prepared to support people who are sort of actively part of a conflict or who are not impartial in any way but who are probably best placed to be reaching people who others can't. And I think processes like that, or not processes, but just the, the state of things this year has made that so much clearer in a way that I think is quite positive when coupled with this analysis that's just come out in the global humanitarian overview of the, the, the I guess, the inability of the sector as it stands now to meet the predicted need for next year without a serious shake-up of how we view things. And I'm sort of hoping that that enables a sort of relinquishing of control and more of a messy ecosystem where a lot of these processes that don't perfectly fit into very old traditional humanitarian boxes will be supported um, and therefore a lot of these reforms that we either sort of want or we don't will be fast-tracked whether or not there's anyone in Geneva pushing for them to be fast-tracked. So I see that as being a real sort of opportunity and one that, I mean, at least for me, I think Ukraine helped make that clearer by talking to a lot of local actors in Ukraine and just realising who they were and how distant they were from this sector and how little they cared about this sector um, while doing quite inspiring work. Yeah, um, I don't know, it's, ma it's making me think of this like Octavia Butler quote of like, um, there's nothing new under the sun, but there are many different suns. And um, I wish I wish that that was the focus, right? Um, to say actually there are lots of other places in the humanitarian sort of um, universe that are changing the markers of what success looks like. So when you have, for example, an office who realizes that they cannot do any planning without having an exercise um, to understand what are the trends and how they are affecting their ability to program. That for me is like the emergence of a son that needs to have some focus. Um, again, go back to Ukraine. When you have small sort of investors from the private sector delivering cash faster than any agency, right? 
at an amount that is actually life-saving, as in $1,000, not 20 bucks, then that for me is another song. Um, I think it's just like, for me, it's a question of labels, maybe. As in, who, who gets to call themselves a humanitarian and therefore who gets to represent this sector that I feel so passionate about? For me, it's changing. So for me, the person who delivered like a lot of cash grants that were actually transformative for people who were trying to escape a war, that's someone that represents this sector. A small organization like you were talking about, Meg, that like is actually delivering fundraising in whatever ways they can and then using digital means for their off-ramp, those are the ones that represent me in this sector. All the other sort of agencies who are like super obsessed about their own relevance and not necessarily having very serious conversations about how is their business model going to have to adapt to serve one in 23 people who are going to need humanitarian assistance um, next year, they don't represent me. And I think I, I, would, like to, I would like to have different sons, right, emerging. I like the one about different sons, and I think that is... I think what I was trying to say is I try to be aware that, that I am under a very specific sun. Right? That, that I've just felt how much you get sucked into, because it's been so turbulent this year in, in Europe, right? It, you, you can really feel how your mind closes around that and how your ability to actually think globally and try to, to empathize with, with the global humanitarian agenda is diminished. And I've got nothing to say, but like, about time, man. I seem like, why would people in Geneva would need to be making all those decisions? I seem like, stop it. Like, stop obsessing about it. There's like no funeral to be held. Okay, this was a glitch in history that like white people in Europe got to decide about global solidarity for the rest of the people who are living in need. Whatever. I celebrate that. It's over give the opportunity for other sons to emerge and decide what matters. So maybe two things to that, because I think that's obvious, obviously right. That's the whole decolonization that we always talk about, right? When I look back at the conversations I've had on True Humanitarian this year, one of the things that really sticks with me is the one I had with Raj Kumar from Devix. And his message was essentially two things. One was, if you're inside the system, get with the program, take some risks and get fired. And secondly, we have to incubate or have to create a growth layer of new initiatives, of new organizations or new projects that are there already. I mean, the, the, the creativity and the, the drive is there, but how do we enable that? I think that, that's the second point. So, so for me, I, I took with me from that conversation on one side, push it, take risks, get fired if you're an incumbent. And secondly, how the heck do we create a growth layer that accelerates all of the positive developments that are already happening? But I think a lot of that also is, even in the way that we talk about this, we're still talking about the sector and who's in the sector. We never sort of start from what's the problem or... You know, what is the problem that is being addressed or what are the activities that are needed to be supported? Like a guy a guy in Chad isn't waking up today and thinking, oh, my basic needs will maybe be facilitated by 
40% humanitarian aid and 25% loss and damage and a sprinkling of development and that will all be wrapped up in a nice nexus bow um, and I'm really looking forward to participating in all of these evaluations. I mean, no, like he's thinking, how can I make an income today and how can I provide for my family and myself and will my home and my pets and my assets withstand a drought? And within this spectrum of my concerns, what are my priorities, you know, today and this month and this year? And our system doesn't allow for that. And it's, it's so interesting because I, I feel like now, you know, this year we've been learning a bit more about climate because we're doing more projects in the climate space and going to COP was so interesting to me because what people are talking about in those forums, you have all of these people talking about climate and their relationship to climate and it's disasters. Like they're talking about disasters and their ability to cope with disasters and then you start bringing sectors into it and it just doesn't meet. Like you don't have conversations that meet in the middle when you're talking to like climate people. And I just wonder if there's something in this relinquishing of control that I'm hoping will be fast-tracked off the back of all of these different focuses this year um, that will just make the person in their community more of the starting point. And I, I wonder how much we can sort of control that and I hope that we can't. But I think that there's just a lot of resources that need to be channeled in a different way to enable that to happen because otherwise it feels like a lot of these opportunities may be missed even if we're sort of almost on the cusp of them taking hold but in a way in a way i think i think it is happening already right like there are people i don't know in chad but in other places that i that i'm working in um where people actually yes wake up one day and like i am fed up of this so i'm fed up for myself and my community and I'm going to use the power of modernity aka the interwebs to do something different and they just get on with it and they do it and I think there's there's beauty in that I've been reading a lot about um, what's the difference between a, an invention and a discovery right so a discovery is something that starts to happen between people and then it changes, it pivots, it, it metamorphoses into something that is really big. And then one day someone stumbles into it and they're like, I've discovered capitalism, right? I'm Adam Smith, look what I discovered. But invention is something that comes from the top and people say, you should do this, you should do that. And they use the example of communism, right? Like Marxism as being one of these things that people invent. And I think what's happening in the humanitarian sector now is that it's, it's going through a process of discovery. And what I would just say is like, if, if you really want to invest, like what you were saying last, Peter, in terms of like creating the spaces, take the friction out of the people who want to do humanitarian work um, by, for example, doing what USAID is doing, creating spaces for them to be able to get funding, right? That's a very clear, simple entry point. Bravo, USAID. Um, just do not block their entry. And then one day someone, hopefully not in Geneva, will discover the new humanitarians who are doing all this work. Just let them be. It will happen on its own. But you see, I think the difference is that people are beginning to say that bluntly. I think I've seen that more this year, that even people from 
quite high positions inside the system recognize this. Maybe sometimes they, there's a little nervous laughter and then they say, oh, you know, really it's like this. It's like, yeah, da, it's obviously like this. It's obviously against our interest to let go of control. And so we've had this conversation 50 times, right? Yes, the guy in chat doesn't care about the cluster system or the nexus. Yes, the creativity is out there. Yes, the system is incentivized to take care of itself rather than the people in, in need. We know this. What I keep on coming back to is an old boss of mine, a Finn, actually. Somehow Finland seems to be popping up in this conversation for me. He, he once said to me that when we send timber down the river in Finland, that the point is not to, stand, to sort of control every single lock going down the river. No, we know where they normally get stuck. And so that's where we stand. And we wait for one that almost gets stuck, and then we give it a little shove, and then it flows again. And so what I'm looking for is, what is that position? What is that shove that you can give to make sure that that flow which is there, that creativity which is there, that that is amplified, that that, that guy in chat actually wins? How do we do that? How do we reformulate the humanitarian project away from being the white savior flying out to save the poor, whatever, and to being the people who stand at the side of the river shoving the things that almost get stuck, enabling flow so that people can get on with their lives. How do we do that? <laughs> I wish I had the answer to that question. Yeah. But I mean, I do. Bucks. Uh, for a million bucks. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be like, can I, yeah, yeah, maybe, can I call a friend? Maybe a million Come bucks. on, girls. I'm a... Did I just call you girls? Sorry. Come on, ladies. I'm relying on you. I feel like a lot of this is because a lot of the resources, there are all these diverse resource, you know, places now where funding is coming and it's going more directly to people who are doing good work and whether or not we call that humanitarianism, to Paula's point, is a different thing. But, I mean, that does need to be scaled up. I wonder if... You know, I mean, we talk a lot about intermediaries and I think it's quite boring because it doesn't feel like it's that revolutionary. But maybe while we have this sector looking the way that it is, when you have these huge agencies who want to remain relevant for a little while, I mean, they could sort of repurpose their roles to be much more supportive intermediaries while these processes from various institutional donors are sort of taking hold and they're working out at what point they can let go of their obsession with due diligence or while we're waiting for a couple of billionaires to just come in and start really shaking up the status quo. Um, my Not to turn it back into a negative, but I think one concern that I have about next year is the focus on famine. And the reason I have that concern is because all of the, the marketing that this status quo sector has been built on and the the sort of status quo that you were mentioning before Lars Peter is about saving lives and feeding people and you know tugging at the heartstrings of this highly emotive visual of you know people need food to survive they're malnourished do we feed them or do we test something else and that has been the the story and the marketing that tells this victims and heroes tale 
and I'm a bit nervous, you know, at a time of unprecedented hunger, as is the story coming out of the humanitarian overview and the, the crisis that has been spurred by the rising food prices, that that may slow some of this progress because it's very easy to kind of tell that story. It's very easy then for a lot of big agencies to, to continue to perpetuate their own self-serving status quo in a way. Yeah, but it's almost like... We we need more youth activism in the sector, right? Like I, I would like to see the equivalent of like the, the, the young person that glues themselves to like a painting for for the sector because I think there's also like a crisis of, of imagination in terms of how do we like see ourselves in a different way. And I think young young people are not the same as young people a couple of decades ago. I think these are These are young people that are super sort of aware of their surroundings and they're very much vocal. So I don't, I don't know. I'd like to see it as a test, right? Of like, oh yeah, everyone's so hungry. Let's feed the hungry. And like how many young people are not going to put their hand up and be like, yeah, it happens because of global politics, right? And like macroeconomics when it comes to food. And by the way, you donor government, you have something to do with it. So I think, um, again, like let them try. Um, let them go ahead with like their own sort of old message. What I'm more interested in is how do we fertilize the ground um, for this movement of global solidarity? And I think changing the goalposts matter, right? So if we stop talking about like the lack of capacity of global actors, but like the lack of capacity of international actors to work with global people, I'd like to see that discourse changing a lot, right? You were mentioning accountability. Yes, like, I don't know, millions and millions get, like, lost in humongously large INGOs and UN agencies every year. No one talks about their lack of capacity. So if we would just be able to own the narrative, to then change the goalpost, from a systemic point of view, we would changing almost like the paradigm of success of the system. It's just that no one is willing to let go of that chair. They're willing to, like give like some pennies for your activities or whatever, but no one is willing to like stand up from their chair where like the success markers of this sector are written down and say, hey, brown people, come sit down. That doesn't happen. That's what I would like to see happening. That's where I do see, I think, a lot of hope in this intersection of humanitarianism and the, the climate movement. And it really only dawned on me, I mean, it's probably really obvious, but what talking to a lot of these youth climate activists and seeing when, I mean, I guess there were similar discussions around COVID, but because climate is this global threat and people really see it as a justice issue and the injustices in how climate change has come about are more and more obvious and the information on that is shared in a way that's, you know, I mean, it's not perfect but it's much more equitable than in the humanitarian space. There's not this group that is kind of like we hold all the information. There is a whole global movement that was started by youth, really. I mean, that's what sort of made it take off to address climate injustice. And in talking about climate injustice, accidentally, there is all these discussions about the humanitarian space and about who should make decisions and who should hold power and who should hold resources. 
And I came back from COP. I mean, I think COP was one of the most, apparently the most disappointing COPs that has ever happened. But I felt really inspired by it because everyone that I met were these young activists. I mean, everyone that we were talking to, were there were sort of activists from, you know, countries from Germany to Uganda. There were whole movements of people who were just doing incredible, incredible work. And the difference was they were backed really by a lot of, you know, global processes or other countries that had more resources, but in a way that, that was like that sort of just giving them a hand. You know, there was no control coming from anywhere else. And so... I do see a lot of hope in that and it was something that was a nice surprise for me out of 2022 because I thought this this line between humanitarianism and climate adaptation and climate risks and climate justice is just getting so blurred that hopefully a lot of that groundswell of activism will just accidentally sort of permeate this space. But maybe that's like another answer towards like Lars Peter's one million sort of question. Um, because imagine if there was a group of like senior humanitarians who got together and their only goal was to make sure that local organizations know the secrets to success in the humanitarian world. And you do it and you do it for free and you do it with no bars in terms of the knowledge that you're sharing. That could be pretty transformational, right? But that, that is not a grand bargain initiative. Uh, again, that needs to be like a grassroots thing that happens from humanitarians who want to see the system change. So maybe start that in 2023, Lars Peter. I, I think it's a great idea, Paula. And in a sense, I've been working a little bit, for example, with uh, a guy called Gopi, who's been on the show earlier, who has this idea about uh, building a platform, building resilient destinations um, for tourism-dependent, uh, climate-affected uh, communities, right? So communities where they get all their livelihood from, from tourism, a billion-dollar industry, or trillion probably, I don't know, it's big. And then they will be hit by climate uh, disasters again and again, wiping out the, the, the lodges and, and the cottages. And, and then how do you make these communities more resilient by somehow siphoning off some of all of the resources from that global tourism industry and driving that towards those communities. That's the sort of solution I find really, really inspiring. And I've been working with Gopi to try to figure out how do you build a platform for that. I've also been working with Travis, who, who, who has this idea about the circular economy, uh, right boot. How do, we, how do we green the sector? How do we make sure that all of the, the trash coming out of, of operations, that that... that is recycled or upcycled or whatever they call it these days. I mean, there are these ideas out there. And so I'm, I'm doing it already and I'm happy to take on a couple of, of more entrepreneurial people who want to drive things forward and, and see if I'm, I can be helpful. And, and so I'm sure you guys are as well. And I would say like, in, in like the small things that actually make big agencies succeed, as in like imagine a course on how to not be bullied by your donor when they do a, a program visit, um, how, how to prepare a winning project proposal, how to define your unique selling points with, um, with like an institutional donor who is looking for something hashtag gender. Those, that is the know-how that needs to be shared. And I, I, I do some of that work, 
I know of other people and other individuals that do that in their free time. So I think, I don't know, let's stop talking about how the system is broken and like do something to have another one grow. I'd like to give the free tip number one here right on True Humanitarian. That is never, never, ever put smart indicators into your log frame. Only do dumb indicators. Only do activity indicators and put the activity as low as possible. Don't believe this bullshit about smart indicators. They just lock you into a cage that has changed once you have to report on it. Dumb down the, the expectations as much as you can and your donor will be happy. That's the end of the podcast. Happy New Year, everybody. <laughs> Happy New Year, Travis. Okay, so I, I like I really like the idea, Paula. So, and I think, as you say, a lot of us are already doing this uh, in different shapes and forms. Now, what we need or, is a brand, and then we need to start connecting. Solidarity, people. I think, right? As in, have have a sense of solidarity with people who are trying to destroy the thing that you've been building for the last eighteen years. In my case, how does that look like? And then. Make make that a question that you ask for yourself and then spring into action. No no more Twitters complaining because Twitter is broken already. So like spring into action, turn your rage into transformation. I mean, I would say though a lot of that, even with those quite specific examples, that is happening, right? Like that is like intermediaries 101. I just wonder if the risk appetite doesn't, doesn't follow that you know there's there's so much focus on kind of capacity strengthening and that's not necessarily then being followed with and you know here are here are some resources to to try putting all of these things into action like I still think we're in this mode where it's like let's try and support localization but let's even more tightly control that by making it like a, a teaching exercise. Just to touch on again Paula's point, because it was so important about how much money gets wasted in huge agencies. <laughs> I mean, there's no reporting. There's no... It, how many times has a huge grant gone in that was supposed to be for some common inclusive service that ends up just sort of funding more and more posts in huge agencies? I, I just think that this kind of hesitation when it comes to passing what are relatively small amounts of money to small actors because they're not deemed to be trustworthy enough. I mean, Ground Truth is one of them. We have been turned down for so many grants from institutional donors because we're just not big enough to have all of the processes in place that they demand, let alone a small community organisation who this is their first foray into the humanitarian space. So, I mean, I do, I think that there is at the top, I was in an IESC principals meeting last week and there was, it was an inspiring meeting. I mean, there was such great conversation, huge will to change things, but they're the sorts of things that need to change. We need to say, okay, if we're going to start changing things, the risk appetite, at least initially, has to kind of increase. We have to be prepared to do things differently in a way that we cannot control and I'm hoping that's what we're going to see more of because external forces are going to push that more than than we currently know. Can I can I add like one last thing? Because I think yes, like give, giving like resources, voice, space, etc. for for local actors is important. But but there's also I think a, a humongous need 
to not ignore the fact that the, the programmatic approaches that we use are from the 50s, as in it's not only how we do it that is outdated, right? It's what we do when we do it. And um, local sort of local actors can try new approaches, but the whole sector needs to start thinking about what does it look like to serve, again, one in 23 people? Um, what does it look like to do, for example, environmental peacekeeping? Um, like we are like on the doorstep of like collapse of humanity and we continue to think that by training tailors, um, things are going to get better. Um, so yes, localization has all of my attention, but our approaches are entirely updated. And I would like to see more funding going into thinking what are some of these programmatic approaches that we need for, for the time that we are in and the type of problems that people experience. That is, that is so outdated. But again, it talks to like the unique selling point of the big agency. So it's also not something that you hear very often, but if you're looking at it from the point of view of someone who's receiving assistance, it's pretty shocking as in like migrants, migrants in, in Latin America receiving this like random cash grant with no design behind it. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not okay. We need to also modernize what we deliver. No, I mean, I think that my hope is that they, they would go hand in hand. And I think this is the whole problem with localization is that it's like how do we equip other people who aren't currently involved in this weird sector to do everything like we do it rather than, you know, how do we actually support ideas that are closer to community priorities because, you know, and it's not necessarily all about localization. It's just about better prioritization and being more responsive to what people actually need in their day-to-day -day lives versus what we think they need in sectors that we have created, you know, a long time ago. I feel like that's where the hopefully I think that change would happen because we wouldn't then, you know, I'm saying I'm saying we, but a lot of the big humanitarian players wouldn't necessarily be controlling the programming in the same way. Yeah. So like changing the designer, right? You change the designer, you change the point of view, therefore you change the design. I like it. And people know what they need to do, you know, as we've all seen time and time again. I mean, we just did this research in Nigeria and it was about voucher assistance and someone said, oh, my voucher assistance is so helpful, thank you so much, and we, we were kind of saying, well, why is it helpful? And they said because we sold it and we used the cash we got that was less than the transfer value of the voucher to put towards a livelihoods activity. I mean, people know, you know, they take what they can and they know what they need to do to try and recover from whatever situation they're in. And we just continue to kind of think we can overly design that from somewhere far away and that it would have a good outcome. I, I sense that we, we all, we have a shared feeling or we have a shared experience of this loss of control or this loss of a central point where the narrative is, is defined. And I think we are all quite comfortable with that. We're actually happy about that. Absolutely. I'm celebrating it open like champagne bottles because um, I think once we've finally managed to understand that change is who we should be, right? Humanitarianism should never be about the status quo. 
it should be about change because that's what happens when you get like struck by a crisis then we're winning so yes give give up the control bravo i really like your idea paula about uh, sort of the a friend in your corner the old farts that have been through the system for for 20 years somehow just making themselves available for for younger entrepreneurs and giving them a few tips on how to to play more dirty and get uh, get more ahead i like that idea i just don't like that you think i'm the one who's supposed to do it i think you should actually be uh, pushing it it was your bloody idea good point okay i will do it because you know what this this happens in the private sector as in like i i work with like venture capitalists who are actually doing that for young companies explaining them how to pitch explaining them how to build a business model mentoring them giving them advice like why aren't we doing it so okay maybe this will be my new year's resolution with meg so i'm not part of it anymore well you said you didn't want to so power to the women So maybe one last thing we could talk about before we we wrap it up and I I'd like to thank both of you for a very delightful uh, conversation it's been really really great one I hope we are still friends in a year from now not entirely sure but I hope we're still friends and I hope that true humanitarian still exists and I hope that that we we will have this sort of conversation again and when we do how will we know that we're moving forward what will have changed that that is a good thing It's like a writing a letter to to yourself uh you, you know I, i i do this i write a letter to myself and then i put it in the box of the plastic christmas tree that i take out every year and uh, it's 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 really it's really hilarious to like remember the worries of the paula of the december of last year so it sounds like oh how inspiring but actually no it's like just to make fun of myself every single time So I think for for next year um I I would like us to to be talking about lots of different things that happened. As in I want to talk about action. I'm I'm starting to get a little bit tired of talking about like can you imagine if we da, da, da? no. I would like us to talk about these are all the things that I did in 2023 to like put my my money where my mouth is. Um that's the sort of letter that I would write to myself. For next year, did you actually do something? I'm hoping I can say yes. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I was thinking about the last conversation we had last year, and I know that something that we were talking about, or at least I was, was I was getting really sick of all of these binary, grandiose statements on Twitter from everyone, including myself, about you know we just need to do this, or like if we did this, everything would obviously be better. And so I feel like looking back over that year um a desire for sort of more humility um has probably shown itself and I feel like that could be taken to new heights for next year like I I think that progress in all of this will be shown by who are having these conversations what are they talking about are they talking about the humanitarian sector or are they talking about how were needs met in a way that was driven by those who were most affected by various intersecting crises you know how have various voices in various arenas um converged to come into these humanitarian discussions are they influencing the work of the ISC principles 
um, which I know is a discussion every year. So that will be what I'm sort of looking for and hoping to foster between now and then. Yeah, I'm on the same track. And I think what we should do is to say that next year's episode is not us talking, it is us bringing voices in here that we have met over the year to come that have inspired us, that we think are moving forward. And that is their voices that drive the, the conversation. And maybe the three of us will be allowed to say something at the end on how we think this is, is moving. But it's not us who are the centerpiece of that conversation. How about that? You just didn't like this conversation, so you're trying to, to find a way out of it for next year. Yeah, yeah. No, we get it. We get it, Lars. Okay. <laughs> We've moved out of the top 50. I think we're back to like the top, top 500 or so. Yeah, so after this ringing endorsement, I take that, that that's what we do. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, last, the next year he's going to start with like, okay, so they plummeted down to like my top 500. <laughs> so I'm welcoming other people to the podcast this year. You know, guys, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation that went places I didn't think it would go. I think it has been uh, really nice to to, as always, spend a bit of time with you and and take stock of a yet another weird year. I hope you have a great break over the holidays and that we have plenty of opportunity to meet face-to-face -face in the year to come. And I look forward to, to having a great conversation with you in a year's time. Yeah, it is lovely. And, and, and thank you for, for making the space always, Lars-Peter, to have conversations about things that matter. Rights and the freedom to be For people to choose their path in life and dream Souls of men beyond what you see Stages are different for each Who will lead? Cycles of outsiders That get fat checks Fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets Ask better questions, pick apart, educate And knowing is safe, we're here to build and debate We are, we are searching for more Open up your mind beyond rich or poor For the truth You've been warned, humanitarian. <laughs>